We welcome you all back uh, today and appreciate your interest and in following what's happening with COVID-19 in our here in our state. Uh, that day 568 is a, a pretty big number. We've been at, at this a really long time. Healthcare workers, uh, the media, state officials, others, uh, families, communities, uh, providers, everyone. And so uh, <clears throat> we'll reflect back a little bit on that near the end, but also there's a lot of news today about the booster vaccines and, and things happening around the state. And so first we're gonna start, turn it over to our uh, vaccination expert and Deputy Secretary, Laura Parahone. All right, thank you. Welcome everybody and thanks for coming on again. Um, so today I'm gonna report out, um, once again, we're doing um, little by little increase, 1% a week on our statewide progress for full vaccination at 70.5%. So congratulations again, New Mexico, for doing such a good job getting vaccinated. Uh, next slide. Um, for those at least one dose, this is exciting. We're almost at the 80% mark of um, people in New Mexico, 18 and over, who've gotten at least one dose. And that's also increasing relatively um, a little bit at a time, 0.6% increase this past week. Next slide. Um, so for 12 to 17 year olds, um, we're also continuing to increase. Um, we have 54.2 of uh, kids 12 to 17 year olds fully vaccinated and 63.7% with at least one dose. Um, once again, there's an uh, increase of 2.8% a week for fully vaccinated. And then for those getting at least one dose, it's 1.1%. So we still have a bit to go on the kids, but um, keep on getting your kids vaccinated so that they can stay safe in school. Next slide. Um, here's the weekly COVID vaccine doses administered since 1224. So you're seeing that you know, after this big boost we had, um, slowly decreasing, but hopefully now um, we'll see an, another increased boost with the boosters. So we'll talk about that in a bit. Next slide. Um, so this is the booster dose update. I know many of you have been wondering about the booster dose. Um, next slide will kind of show the timeline. So this is the timeline for New Mexico Pfizer booster doses. So um, the FDA approved the Pfizer booster for 65 and over last week. Um, and for those at high risk for severe COVID, then um, on September 23rd of the past week, um, the ACIP and the CDC uh, clarified that to be those who should get the vaccine, who are those 65 and over, residents in long-term care facility, those 50 and 64 year olds with underlying medical conditions, those are those who should get the vaccine. And then they had another group that those who can get the vaccine, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, but 18 to 49 year olds with underlying medical conditions and those 18 to 64 in high risk occupational institutional settings. Um, on September 24th, our New Mexico Medical Advisory Team reviewed that and concurred with that uh, conclusion of ASAP and CDC for New Mexico. And then this past Monday, we started booster doses for the should groups. And then on October 11th, we're gonna start booster doses for the group that may get the vaccine. So I'll explain a little bit more in the next slide. Um, so what we did was kind of divide it up into two groups, um, eligible groups who should get the vaccine. So I showed, uh, we show it here in yellow 
Um, once again, just kind of going through people 65 and over, residents in long-term care facilities, 50 to 64 year olds. And the reasons for that is that the risk of uh, COVID hospitalization and death increases with age. For residents in long-term care facilities, it's age and also being in congregate settings. And then also risk increase with age and medical conditions. So that's why 50 to 64 year olds with underlying medical conditions. And then this other group of the may get vaccine really came about because I, every person has to identify their individual risk of getting COVID, um, the exposure and transmission. Um, so 18 to 49 year olds with underlying medical conditions, um, or if you work in a high risk occupation and institutional setting, and you're like, for instance, you're in a place that you're oftentimes exposed to people um, without masks, uh, you're a restaurant worker and no one else is masked in the, in the setting, then you may consider getting the vaccine for that extra boost. Next slide. Um, here is the list of the underlying medical conditions. That's also on our website and also when you register on our, on our app, um, it'll go through all the list of chronic underlying medical conditions that can put people more at risk for COVID. Um, and we did add substance use disorders because that's a recent um, medical condition that the CDC added as putting you at higher risk for getting severe COVID. Next slide. And then these are the high risk occupational and institutional settings where people could potentially get um, more exposed to COVID. So first responders like healthcare workers, firefighters, police and congregate care staff, uh, education staff, food and agricultural workers, manufacturer workers, corrections, US Postal Service workers, public transit and grocery store workers, basically people who are in contact a lot with the public. Next slide. Um, just a little recap, we just also want to clarify because we've been getting a lot of questions of booster versus the additional dose. So this booster dose is for Pfizer only, and it's really to boost immunity from waning antibodies from the vaccine. And once again, we shared who qualifies already, but when can I get the shot? It's basically six months after the completed second dose of Pfizer. So a lot of you who've gotten the shots from December to April, um, and you fit one of these categories, then you would be um, available, eligible to get the, the dose right now, the boost. Um, and then a lot of people were asking about why is it um, for additional dose for immune compromised people? Why is it Pfizer and Moderna? It's because the FDA approved Pfizer and Moderna for those who need an additional shot to help build up their immune response against severe infection and death. And so those are people who are immune compromised, you're less likely to mount an effective response, and that's 28 days after your second shot. So just to clarify that um, for the boosters. Next slide. Um, and just for like kind of a coming attractions, um, COVID-19 vaccines also may be uh, approved for other populations. Once again, we um, receive that from the FDA and then we implement it. So in the com coming date months, FDA and the ASIP will review authorization for potential expansion of vaccine eligibility for um, Pfizer for children ages five to 11. Pfizer already uh, submitted their um, EUA for this uh, vaccine for kids. So we're hoping that actually people are thinking by Halloween, we might have 
uh, vaccines for kids, which is very exciting. Um, we're awaiting on word about Moderna and J&J boosters. And then of course the Pfizer booster for other subgroups that are the younger age groups who got you know, approved later. So therefore everything is uh, later approved once you have that in the, in the hopper. So thanks, next slide. Um, so let's talk about how uh, New Mexico's rolling out booster doses. So um, once again, as we talk about booster doses, we wanna always keep people informed and remember that there are many people who are uh, still not vaccinated and at risk. Um, certain, there's a gap between uh, Hispanic, Latino and African-American populations. We're doing better every week. But um, there's a gap between uh, right now 50.9% uh, of uh, African-American population have been vaccinated and 51.6% of Hispanic or Latino population. So there's still a gap. Anyone unvaccinated is still at risk. So we want to keep on remembering that the primary doses are still our first priority. Next slide. Also, there's geographic areas in New Mexico that are still not fully vaccinated. So once again, we want to also encourage people um, in different areas of the state to get vaccinated. Um, you know, let let um, you know talk to your provider, talk to someone you know to help uh, get uh, get the facts on on the vaccine. Next slide. And then uh, this is a late breaking information from the CDC. Um, they have more data that shows that COVID-19 can cause serious illness, deaths, and poor pregnancy outcomes, including stillbirths or um, kids that, you know, when they're born have to go into the ICU. So nationwide, they've collected this data that now shows um, there have been 125,000 cases of people who are pregnant with uh, COVID. Uh, 22,000 have been hospitalized, and there have been 161 deaths. So basically, hospitalized um, pregnant women with COVID can have very severe illness. And the way we can prevent this is by getting vaccinated. Next slide. Um, COVID-19 vaccine has been proven to be very safe in pregnancy, and it also doesn't affect fertility. We only have 31% of women vaccinated nationwide who are pregnant. And once again, they're more likely to get sick when they do get COVID. So getting COVID vaccine can protect you. It doesn't affect fertility, and it's really recommended also for people who are pregnant, breastfeeding, trying to get pregnant, or might become pregnant in the future. So um, also remember that the vaccine protects you from getting hospitalized or dying for all people. You're 10 times more likely to get um, hospitalized or die from COVID if you have not been vaccinated. Next slide. So looking at that, of course, that's why New Mexico has unvaccinated New Mexicans as always our first priority. So for that population, we still have 500 and over 520,000 people uh, due for a vaccine. And so we're always gonna prioritize those inside the app. Um, the other group that we're prioritizing are once again, the people over 60, uh, 65 and older, residents in long-term care facilities and 50 to 64 year olds with underlying conditions. Um, for that, this whole first week, the whole two first next two weeks are really dedicated to them because we want to make sure that the older people who are more vulnerable to COVID have uh, first priority in these coming weeks. And then we're going to move on, on in week three 
to everyone else who may get the vaccine. So um, we're just kind of leaving a space so that people can get vaccinated who might take a little bit longer to get on the app. Uh, next slide, or, you know, or to get to an appointment. Um, I know it's a little confusing. <laughs> There's a lot of different categories. So um, what, what our team has done is um, you can actually go on, our, on the website and you can click, do you have questions about the COVID-19 booster? And you can click on our vaccinenewmexico.org to look at the screening tool. And that'll help walk you through to help you determine if you're eligible. Next slide. Um, this is how you schedule your appointment. Of course, you can use our app, which is vaccinenewmexico.org, but also you can ask your provider if you have questions about the vaccine or your eligibility. You can also schedule your vaccine appointment with your provider or at a pharmacy. Um, and then like once again, um, schedule your vaccine. You can also get it at the same time as your flu shot. So as everyone's getting ready for flu shots now and you're eligible for a booster for COVID, you can get those at the same time. We're also sending reminder notices for those who have been registered on the app. Um, you may, some of you may have gotten texts already. And so that will kind of remind you to go get an appointment. Next slide. Um, the other thing is, is we wanna make sure from an equity standpoint that those who are older and have difficulty getting onto the internet or um, for other reasons, um, difficulty with language, um, we wanna make sure you can get access to the call center. So please, we really wanna save that call center for those people. Um, it's open from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Monday through Sunday, every single day of the week. And you can do option three or nine if you're a Spanish speaker. So um, please use that if you, you're having difficulty. And if not, please register on the app. Next slide. Um, we're also really grateful to all our providers in the state. Um, the uh, Little by little, we're increasing the numbers of um, New Mexico providers who are uh, supporting um, the state by giving out vaccine. Next slide. And then um, once again, just a reminder to, um, you know, you can ask your provider for your next dose um, or, or ask them any questions, uh, trying to get flu at the same time. Um, you can give it in the same arm or different, you know, if necessary, or you can get them in different arms. So, um, and uh, yeah, and then we continue to encourage you to talk to your provider or someone you trust if you have questions about the COVID vaccine. So thank you so much. And thank you once again for all you're doing. I'm gonna turn this over to my awesome colleague, Dr. Christine Ross. Thank you, Deputy Secretary Petahone. And, um, um, I'm happy to be here today to uh, have the opportunity to review some of our EPI surveillance data. So we'll go ahead and get started. Slide one. Uh, so I want to point out just really quickly um, what's happening nationally. So the U.S. has surpassed 689,000 deaths uh, related to COVID-19. Not a milestone that I'm happy to report. Um, and we have seen over 43 million cases to date. So we've been managing this surge in cases, which began in July and 
As everyone's well aware, uh, this is fueled by the highly infectious Delta variant. Uh, this is the variant of the virus that causes COVID-19. It looks like this surge in cases as depicted on the right-hand side of the slide, we see that this surge in cases is beginning to decline. And um, I am happy to report that, but I think it's also important to acknowledge that we may be far from, from done uh, with this surge, um, given that we're, we're heading into the, the winter season. So the map on the left is showing case rates or the number of cases per 100,000 people. The darker color equates to higher case rates. And I, as I was, I, I recall reporting on one of these press conferences prior, we know that the southern part of the United States was hit uh, very hard by this uh, summer surge. And as you can see by those, those lighter colors there in the southern part of the United States, they are uh, seeing a reprieve now. But this uh, Delta variant continues to move across the country and it continues to seek out and find unprotected individuals. And you see the very dark colors up in the northwestern part of the United States, which is now uh, seeing um, the highest, uh, some of the highest case rates. I think the take home message here is that we are beginning to see a, a decrease or a decline in cases, um, but we don't feel that we're out of the woods yet here in the United States related to this Delta surge. So next slide. This is another one that you're familiar with. This graphic uh, depicts new cases reported in New Mexico over time. Uh, the far right of the graph depicts the most recent surge uh, cases, uh, which again, we, we began to see um, once the Delta variant became predominant here in the state. The seven day moving average, though that's not labeled, that is the black dotted line. That's the seven day moving average of cases. And you can see again that we also here in, in New Mexico are beginning to show uh, a decline. We certainly hope this decline uh, continues and we're gonna be monitoring this uh, really closely. So next slide. Another one that you're familiar with this is our level of community transmission map and table. Uh, this depicts two metrics. It's the total new cases per 100,000 persons per day and the test percent uh, positivity. I think the take home message here is that most of the state is depicted in red, uh, which by the scale, which isn't shown on this slide, equates to a high level of community transmission. We have five counties that are depicted in the orange, which equates to uh, what we call substantial levels of community transmission. And there is a uh, table that goes along with this, which, which describes um, what, what the metrics are and how they're applied to this different color coding. I think the, the take home message here is that we have a long way to go, given that most of our state's population is still residing in counties uh, with this high level of uh, disease activity. And what do I mean by high level of disease activity? That either a county has a test percent positivity greater than 10%, or they have a case rate above 14 new cases per day per 100,000 people. That equates to about 100 cases a week uh, per 100,000 persons. Next slide. 
So we wanted to give a quick update on this uh, recent change to the national case uh, definition for COVID-19. It was a slight change and um, uh, this was uh, agreed upon um, uh, with the CDC and it went into effect on September 1st. So going forward, new cases will include individuals who test positive more than 90 days following a prior documented infection. Or in really plain terms, this means individuals uh, who have evidence of reinfection um, with the virus that causes COVID-19. So this is a laboratory confirmed um, uh, SARS-CoV-2 positivity uh, that has occurred we have documented 90 days following the, uh, an initial infection. So beginning on September 27th, uh, the Department of Health began included these, including these cases in our reported case counts. So I, I want to just emphasize that overall, uh, the rate of reinfection is not clear, but according to our surveillance data here in the state and what others are reporting to date, it does appear to be relatively infrequent. So what does that mean again in, in plain language? It means that individuals who recover from COVID-19 appear to have a low risk of reinfection. But what we don't know uh, and why we continue to emphasize the need for everyone to get out and get vaccinated, where it's really not clear how long that protection lasts. It's really not clear if that protection is variable according to the type of uh, infection you had the first time. And it's really not clear how protected an in individual will be against variants. And so I also wanna just note that we are monitoring uh, both reinfection cases and we are, we are monitoring vaccine breakthrough cases as well. Again, both appear to be relatively infrequent. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, so uh, we know that with this Delta surge and, and the surge of cases that we're seeing here um, in New Mexico, we have seen elevated case rates among school-aged children, and we've reported that out in these press conferences over the past few weeks. And so we just want to re-emphasize the importance of, of layering uh, these mitigation measures in school or these prevention measures in school. And one of those mitigation or prevention measures is, is masking. And we really think that universal masking inside schools particularly now with really with our high levels of community transmission coupled with a really large segment of our population who are not eligible to be vaccinated we believe that masking is really critical so what this slide is showing is a report from Arizona and in a nutshell what they showed was that schools in two of the state's most populous counties were over 3.5 times more likely to have have COVID-19 outbreaks if they didn't have a mask requirement uh, in place at the start of the school period uh, compared with schools that required universal masking on day one. 
So again, we really want to emphasize that we support universal masking. We think it's an important component in the, in the recommended layer prevention strategy for schools. And this study um, supports that premise that these face masks are part of this larger strategy to reduce COVID-19 transmission and to prevent outbreaks in the school setting. Okay, next slide. So I think there's a few slides here on testing and let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Uh, so th this slide is taken from a uh, report called the State Profile Report. It's posted on, uh, you can find the link uh, down there below. It's on the CDC website. And essentially what this showing is in the blue line, These are this is the seven-day average of daily tests completed here in New Mexico. And you can see that with our surge in cases, we also had a surge in testing. And on average, that seven-day average has been sitting around 10,000. Uh, a total tests a day. Um, and we're really happy to see the orange line. If you follow that along, that is the percent test positivity, uh, which along with that increased volume in testing, we're seeing a decline in that test uh, percent positivity. And let's move to the next slide. And this is uh, the uh, blowing that number up a little bit larger and for you to see how that's changed over time. A gating measure for the state had, a, had our test percent positivity at 7.5%. And that's depicted in that uh, green box there. And you can see that right now we're sitting uh, below that target at 6.6%, which is a statewide number. We're happy to see that. And again, um, though, when you drill that down to uh, county level, there is still quite a lot of variability by county and many counties that are, that are, are still uh, uh, much higher than that number. Uh, next slide. So we know that access to, access to testing is paramount and access to uh, a rapid result is really paramount. And so this is data that we um, that we monitor where we're looking at the, the testing turnaround time. And this is broken down by reporting laboratory. And these are really the biggest, uh, the biggest players uh, in the state. There's many, many, many other uh, entities that report to the state. Um, but what you see listed on the left-hand side are really the largest uh, reporters. And overall, what we are seeing is that test turnaround time has improved. And when we pull these numbers all together, we're seeing that this is less than, uh, it's less than a day and a half currently. There is variability when you look up by lab um, and we're, we're working together with Vault because we still see that Vault testing turnaround uh, turnaround time is amongst the highest, uh, but overall we've seen a significant improvement in the ability to get these test results back uh, to an individual rapidly so that they can act upon the result. Um, I do want to quickly mention um, that there is some news that folks might be aware of that the federal government has committed uh, some funding, a large amount, I believe over uh, $670 million, if, if I'm remembering that correctly, towards purchasing um, over-the-counter um, rapid test. And so we're not quite sure yet what that means for New Mexico, but I do want to share that um, that uh, news. And that's something that we think is exciting because we do think um, rapid tests are also a really important public health 
tool uh, to help us control this, um, this pandemic. So next slide. And I believe this is my last slide where we just want to emphasize, please, um, if you have symptoms consistent with COVID-19, we want you to get out and uh, get a test. If you, if you don't have symptoms, but you're uh, in close contact of a positive case, also that's another priority uh, a, a bucket of folks that we hope uh, will get out and get tested. We wanna emphasize that this is, this is really regardless of vaccination status, we want to encourage testing, um, whether you're vaccinated or not, if you have symptoms or you're a, a close contact. And on the right hand of the slide, there is a link uh, where folks can visit uh, findatestnewmexico.org uh, to help locate a testing site. And with that, I believe that's, I'm going to turn this over to Secretary Scrace now. Uh Thank you very much, Christine. I'm coming to you all today from my office at the Department of Health, and uh, I'm experiencing a little bit of internet connectivity, so I want my uh, partners, uh, Laura and Christine, to be ready to take over my slides if necessary. Uh, I, I, I re I'm really grateful that we have two experts like we do in the Department of Health, in Laura and Christine, Laura really knows everything about our vaccine efforts and is always planning ahead. Christine, our direct connection to the CDC, ensuring that information that CDC puts out gets worked into the uh, how we do uh, our jobs and how we manage the pandemic here at DOH. And likewise, uh, Christine's the one ultimately responsible for all that data that we send to the CDC. And sometimes you may not realize it, but Every shred of data you see on a CDC website or in the Washington Post or the New York Times all comes uh, from Christine's epidemiology response division. And so uh, New Mexico has a reputation of having some of the best data in the country. I personally think we have the best and we're grateful because it takes good data to really manage this pandemic. Let's talk about hospitals. Uh, we're still skirting that line uh, just below crisis standards of care. One early sign of potential relief is we had our, our number of patients in the hospital uh, today with COVID dropped to 287 total. That's a, a low for the past uh, six weeks or so and a slight downward trend. And so we're hoping to see that continue to stabilize. I built a bunch of <clears throat> slides today to answer questions you've asked in the past. So hopefully some of the same reporters who asked those questions are on the line with us today. But we'll walk through some additional data and an additional drill down. Next slide, please, Brianna. Uh, just, you're used to these slides, only 10 ICU beds available in the state. That's a little bit worse. To, uh, total general medical surgical beds, 69, a little bit better, but still extremely tight on ICU beds across the state. And, and the other the thing I always say when I show this map is every single one of those numbers that was not zero when they produced the map yesterday is was likely a zero uh, late last night or early this morning. And so we continue to struggle with our ICU capacity in our state with a small with the lowered number of beds that we have. Next slide. <clears throat> you know, we get a lot of questions about hey, aren't we being flooded with patients from other states? Are they the ones filling up all of our hospital beds and ICU beds? So this is a snapshot 
set of data. And I'll start on the right. These are people who are admitted to New Mexico hospitals from other states. And you can see the states. See, we have five from Arizona, four from Texas, but a lot from places far away like Kentucky and, and uh, uh, you know, and, and Georgia. And so in all likelihood, most of those out-of-state admissions are people who are vacationing here or here on business, got sick, and ended up being in the hospital for COVID. Uh, I think the other thing to note is that of those 19 patients, only one of them actually was transferred here from an out-of-state emergency room for COVID. So that's how we conclude that the vast majority of these people are actually uh, here for other reasons. And then on the flip side of the equation, so that's the importation of COVID hospitalizations. On the exportation of uh, uh, hospital patients, you can see last week we had 86 patients that were transferred out of the state for care in, in other states. And you can see Texas, uh, it's really just Texas, Arizona, and Colorado. And you can see the numbers there. So you subtract the one number from the other, we get the fact that New Mexico actually sent 67 more patients out of state uh, than we have out of state people in hospital beds. So we're still, uh, this is something that we rely heavily on the larger hospital capacity of our uh, the states that surround us, New Mexico having the lowest hospital capacity of all of those states. Next slide, please. Uh, and just out of state tra hospital transfers, how many people do we send? Uh, how, sorry. Uh, how many people are transferred from out of state into New Mexico? Sorry about the title, because I, I said what it should be, and now I can see where it could be re read both ways. These are people coming into the state, transferred into the state. We had a huge peak last year, a little later than this time. But as you can see, at the most recent data, we're down to a relatively low level now. So that's great. Uh, next slide. I wanted to share this every now and then, our data that we send to the CDC makes it into a newspaper. This is the Washington Post, came out earlier this week, and it's sort of a colored map. And I find these two axis color maps uh, difficult to interpret myself. I'm not very good with colors, but let me just tell you that green is really good. Green means a high vaccination rate, and a low hospitalization rate. And so even though we are struggling and our ICUs are full, we still have a much lower percentage of people in our state being admitted to hospitals than other states do. And so for if you have, New Mexico is almost completely green and you have to go fly a really long way to get to another, you have to go all the way to New England to find states that are completely green. And so. I'm really proud of our team for this. I'm really proud of the people who've worked so hard, such long hours. I'm really proud of uh, the media uh, who've helped us in this effort, get the word out. I'm proud of all New Mexicans who've contributed to the effort by wearing masks or getting vaccinated or keeping your distance in a way that prevents the spread of COVID. And so, you know, these, <clears throat> these surges are week after week of press conferences with data that want, some people might think are depressing. And it's important to me to celebrate our successes. And we should just all, just for a moment, consider the role each of us has played as an individual in turning New Mexico green 
in, on this map where green is very, very good. Okay, uh, New Mexico hospital employee vaccination rates. I don't know if I can get some help with from you, Brianna, with a pointer on this, but the line here uh, <clears throat> starts with the, just the percent of hospitals that are reporting each week. So we had a pretty rapid response. It only two, took two weeks to get up to 95%. We dropped a little bit last week, back up to 90% this week. We do regulate this. This is a state legal requirement. So we are in constant contact with non-reporting hospitals and working very hard to getting them up to reporting. We haven't started uh, levying financial penalties yet. The one thing I will say is that most of the non-reporting hospitals, but not all, are freestanding facilities that don't really have a lot of inpatient hospital beds. They're not what we would think of as a general service hospital, but the law is the law. All are expected to report. So that's the line, and we plan to get that up to uh, <clears throat> the sum of people who are reporting and people uh, experiencing the consequences of not reporting will be 100% very soon. In terms of the percent of hospital workers that fall into various categories, I'm just going to focus on the last bar there. If you can point it out, Brianna, on 926, September 26, just a few days ago on Monday when the reporting came in. Uh, because we're dealing with percents, I think we're going to do numbers of people next time. But you can see here that about 88% of New Mexico hospital employees are fully vaccinated. Okay, 4% of them are partially vaccinated. That's the blue there. Uh, uh, we have a, ver a sliver, only 1% that have no vaccination and no exemption. And then there are 7% of people, because the vaccine is required, who for religious me or medical reasons, as allowed by the public health order, have claimed that exemption that exemption has been approved by their employer. The state is not involved in those exemption approvals for hospital workers, except in our own facilities. And so I think we're doing pretty well. Basically what this is, is there's only 1% of people out there when you go to a hospital who uh, have not yet either been vaxxed, had one vaccine or received an exemption. And it's clear that we're gonna end up with more than 92% of all hospital workers actually uh, are fully vaccinated. Hospitals, I would say, have been rather uh, rigorous in enforcement uh, of this in many, many locations. Some hospitals giving employees three days to get vaccinated, and if they don't, they put them on leave. Not everyone is that strict. Other uh, hospitals, many that I know of, uh, put unvaccinated employees after the initial due date for the first vaccine. Uh, they put them on administrative leave where they can spend their vacation time. And once that's spent, they will no longer be working in their hospital. So we're seeing progress and hoping uh, to get a, this one across the finish line very soon. And I know you've been asking for this detail. We got an email this week and here it is. And we'll have some harder, uh, we'll have numbers of people on that left axis next time. So you can see the growth that would come during reporting through reporting. Next slide, please. Uh, I just want to focus again, although I hate to do it, on the deaths that we're seeing. You'll remember at the very end of August, we had 10 deaths, I think, in the 823 to 829. 
And this is the way it happens when people pass from COVID. It takes a while for their death certificate to get signed by their uh, treating physician, routed to the funeral home and then to the Department of Health uh, or through the hospital to the Department of Health, et cetera, et cetera. And so you can see those numbers from the past steadily rising. And unfortunately, that 12 uh, deaths we saw last week is just the preliminary number that will likely rise over 40 as well. And, and even as and we can start to expect to see a decline in the number of deaths two to three to four weeks after the decline in hospitalizations, which we're not quite seeing yet, and six weeks after the decline in cases. So sadly, we're still, still losing folks uh, from COVID. Next slide. Treatments, I just wanna, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that uh, people get treated if they meet the criteria. Next slide, please. Uh, uh, on the right, we've got the monoclonal antibody treatment that happens as an outpatient for people who have symptoms of COVID, a positive test, of course, are 65 and older or obese or one risk factor. This is given as an outpatient. There are two ways intravenously and just like a shot that you can get that doesn't take as much time. We're still studying why the September 2nd to 8th uh, administration, it, it may be an outlier. We're not sure we're studying that data, but you can see that we're continuing to rise in treatments at least in the past three weeks. That's what we wanna see. We want as many people to be treated as possible because if you're in that blue bar or red bar, the two combinations that we have available, your chances of being hospital, hospitalized drop by 75%. With no ICU beds, uh, you do not wanna go into the ICU. On the left, uh, again, inpatient treatments uh, for people with moderately ill uh, you know, disease from COVID, not severe disease, with remdesivir, and those stay high over 1,000, which is what we want to see as well. Next slide, please. Uh, I wanted to go over the Invermectin data. Uh, I was intending to go through all of this with you first today. I ended up CNN uh, kind of in uh, the New York Times got uh, tracked us down over the weekend, but uh, this is the poison uh, control center data. You can see from the graph that we've had 20 reports of ivermectin uh, exposures with adverse effects reported to the poison control center. You'll remember this came up when we learned about a couple deaths, we required reporting. And you can see reporting has jumped quite a bit. Even, uh, of those 20 cases so far this year, 15 reports in the last month. Uh, I spent a good deal of time going over the spreadsheet that my colleagues, uh, and I really want to thank them deeply, at uh, the uh, Poison Control Center at UNM send me. And it's horrifying as a physician to look at this spreadsheet. You know, I've treated people with ivermectin before. It's a drug for parasites and worms. And every now and then I'll have a patient with a lot of foreign travel, a lot of travel outside the U.S. who gets an infection the typical dose, it comes in a three milligram tablet for humans, but the dose range that people had taken or consumed was between uh, 1.7 milligrams and 11, 117 milligrams. Uh, we're talking about uh, you know, 40 times the healthy, uh, normal adult dose in a day. Of these 20 people, about half of them, uh, Receive treatment at, I'm sorry, of the 15 people now, we're just doing the August, September subgroup, 11 and 15 uh, received treatment at a hospital urgent care, 
nine were confirmed to have COVID positivity. And uh, that's because, and 10 of them were, 10 of the uh, 15 took a veterinary product, not a human product. And there were uh, four we didn't know about. So uh, most took veterinary products. About half of the folks were taking ivermectin to prevent COVID-19. Half of them were taking the product to treat COVID-19. And actually one person earlier in the year took ivermectin uh, as part of a suicide attempt in our state. It was not successful, thankfully, uh, for that person. A little bit more data breakdown. We don't plan to show this regularly, but it just shows that these cases are spread all over the state. You can see, uh, I think I got it yesterday, 11 different counties there. Uh, uh, next slide. Uh, and on the right, oh, sorry, on the previous slide, on the, on the right, you can see it's people of all ages. Uh, on the next slide, you can see all of the awful symptoms you can get from taking too much ivermectin. I don't want to read through this, uh, uh, kind of depressing, but serious, serious side effects, seizures, vomiting, uh, depression of breathing, abdominal pain, and then of course, organ failure. And, and we did, as we said, had two deaths in New Mexico. One was a 38-year-old woman and one was a 79-year-old man. In both cases, they didn't die purely of an ivermectin overdose. Uh, the cause of their death was really COVID, multiple organ failure from COVID. But a key feature in both cases was that these individuals delayed seeking emergency care for uh, symptoms of coronavirus because they thought the ivermectin ivermectin would take care of it. And that's a serious, serious problem. You know, if you're short of breath and your heart is pounding, what you need is oxygen. You need to be in a hospital. You don't need uh, horse paste or other veterinary preparations. Uh, and so on the next slide, I think I want to sum it up. You know, I think the jury is still out on ivermectin. I'm not here to condemn the drug today. I've learned from my colleague, Dr. Ross, on this one, but the problem with any unproven measure for treating COVID, no matter what it is, is the fact that people take that unproven treatment. Uh, like say you're, you're taking it to prevent COVID, there's proven treatments. There's proven treatments to prevent COVID. Vaccinations dramatically lower the risk of getting COVID. So that's problem number one. And problem number two is when you're not taking a proven treatment when you have COVID, uh, we have treatments to avoid hospitalization and death from serious COVID-19 infections. And so, you you know, people could be getting monoclonal antibody treatment. In the case of the two people that died, they were substituting an ineffective treatment for uh, effective treatment. The way I like to talk about this, because I'm an internist and probably a middle-aged white male, is that if I'm having crushing substernal chest pain and I'm sweating and getting short of breath and that pain is going up into my jaw and down my arm, and I'm feeling dizzy and woozy, you know, and that pain is really boring through my chest. I could take antacids. I could be a typical guy and say, you know, it's probably just heart heartburn. I'll just take antacids. But the fact is that antacids don't help with a heart attack. I should be taking an aspirin and calling 911. And that is exactly what's happening in every case that people substitute an unproven treatment for a COVID infection for a proven one. And so just urging everyone, uh, I'm not gonna tell you what to take and what not to take. If you wanna take some of these drugs, 
Um, that's going to have to be your decision. We are in America. But on the other hand, don't short yourself from the oxygen or the monoclonal antibodies or hospitalization or seeing a physician or other care provider that you need when you get sick with COVID. We don't need any more deaths. Next slide. I wanted to share this video with you. It was, it's very well done. Um, speaking of avoiding hospitalization and death, the, the folks at Loveless put together a clever video that shows what it's like to be an unvaccinated patient coming into the hospital. And I um, presume we've tested this and it works. So whoever's running the slides, uh, let's get going and watch this. It takes about a minute. And we'll get it going and then we'll share our screen again. Rihanna, we could see that. So all you needed to do is start the video and uh, make it full screen. See you soon. I love you. This is a normal, healthy set of lungs. This is your lungs with COVID pneumonia. We're going to need to admit you to the hospital. I have a breathing treatment for you. We're transferring you to ICU. I have this machine called a BiPAP for you. It's gonna give off some pressure a little bit, but try to breathe with it. I think at this point, we really need to put you on the ventilator to let you rest, see if we can get your oxygen levels up and give you time to heal. doing the best we can. We are placing him on a rotopro bed. This will help him breathe better. I know it's been 30 days. We're not giving up. Hey, hang in there. We got this. Can you help us transport a patient? It's his wife. So I want to thank Besta Sandoval, the chief medical officer uh, at Loveless for sharing that with me and giving us permission to share it More with all of you. Make every night. Uh, let's go to the next slide, Brianna. Uh, and uh, yeah, and, I, and you know, I got a little choked up when I watched that this time. I didn't last time. I, uh, I have friends who've had COVID, but I have many, uh, maybe most of my friends are worker, healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, respiratory technicians, uh, nurse practitioners, and, and physician assistants, and all of the many, many uh, folks who are necessary to run a hospital. I've been meeting with uh, leaders, of our uh, many of our hospitals many times a week 
to try to manage this pandemic. I talk regularly with many people who work in the hospital, and I don't think we realize the level of sacrifice and the amount of uh, risk that these folks take every day to keep New Mexicans safe, to treat them for coronavirus, and to save lives. And uh, <clears throat> the the volumes in the hospitals are, are hot, the highest that any of these people have ever seen in their time, their entire career. And they've lasted the longest, uh, this surge uh, uh, throughout the whole pandemic, pandemic of any they've ever seen in their lives. And, and the one thing I wanna say is I thought they went through it with incredible courage, taking a risk uh, every day, uh, worrying about whether they bring COVID home to their families, worried about whether they would be in Affected, you know, healthcare workers have older relatives and all the same things we do. And, uh, and you know, I think they were just amazingly brave uh, through the whole first part of the pandemic until the vaccination came out. You could see everyone in healthcare spirits lifted, especially those of us who got to give shots by how, what a difference we could finally make to stem the tide of this scourge that it really uh, wiped, uh, you know, really ended the lives of so many people and disabled uh, so many others, either for a period of time or more, more long-term. And now I have to tell you that putting our healthcare workers through this again um, with full ICUs um, and uh, not being able to transfer people who need intensive care, you know, somewhere in the state immediately, like we usually can, be, and in almost every instance for a case of coronavirus, that's clearly preventable. Uh, you know, the ICUs, basically, we've shown you the data, are full of unvaccinated people. It's incredibly difficult as a healthcare worker to see this second sort of scourge, if you will, of preventable illness. The first was not, the second is. So I really want to thank every person who has helped in any way to provide care for patients in New Mexico over the past uh, 18 and a half months. And I want you to know that our hearts really go out to you now. I know it's tougher now. I know you're working harder now. And I know the emotional toil of uh, treating preventable illness is higher than it was uh, when we were treating uh, unpreventable illness with very little treatment. And so I thank you. I encourage our media partners to talk to more of you and hear your stories and uh, just can't uh, say enough about uh, how much we in state government appreciate all you've done. So um, with that, I'll try to regain my composure, do the closing slide and uh, we'll go on to Q&A. <clears throat> So remember, Delta is two times more infectious than what we've seen before. That means we all need to be two times or more careful than we've been before. Uh, Christine talked about getting tested very eloquently. Uh, I've, I've harped on getting treatment and I won't stop until we have more people getting it. Be careful indoors. Uh, and then we all know what we need to do about washing our hands. Uh, you know, indoor masking is a requirement, uh, maintaining social distancing. Uh, don't forget your regular health care. And as Laura so eloquently explained, get vaccinated. With that, I'm going to 
take a couple deep breaths and turn it back over to uh, Matt, I believe, for our uh, reporter Q&A today. Thanks very much, Dr. Scrace and uh, Dr. Potthone. Just a friendly reminder to turn your screen on or at least have it at the ready uh, in case questions come your way. Uh, thanks to our press partners for being here. Um, quick uh, reminder of the protocol here. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question, please just raise your hand and we'll get to those questions in order. And um, uh, we will uh, be continuing with the protocol we started a couple weeks ago. So no need to just cluster all your questions into one. Uh, we'll go through the, the crowd of reporters multiple times until everybody's had a chance to ask all the questions they have. And then one final uh, note, uh, if you have a question about epi epidemiological data or our reports, uh, we did get one of those ahead of time and we discussed it a bit. Uh, and thank you very much for submitting it in advance. If you do have a question that pertains to the epidemiological reports, if you could just have the name of the report at the ready and the page number that you're referring to so that our principals can bring that same report up on their screens and, and make sure to respond um, to, to exactly what you're referring to. So with that, uh, we'll start with uh, Julia Goldberg, followed by Brittany Costello and Stella Sun. And uh, final reminder, if you could just uh, name your outlet when I call on you, I'd appreciate that as well. Thanks so much. Julia, you should be unmuted. Actually, I'm having a little trouble with the, uh, the unmute options. Let me try some other things here, just a moment. The, the standard options for unmuting are just simply not appearing on my screen, so you don't mind just giving, giving me a moment to fiddle. Um, I'm gonna ask Brianna or uh, if, if Hannah, if you're here, if we could share co-hosting capabilities and if others could see if you're capable of unmuting folks. For whatever reason, I'm not seeing any menu options whatsoever associated with any of our, our attendees. Yeah, Matt, DOH comms is listed as host, and I do not have the ability to unmute. Okay. Brianna, are you able to, um, to I'm not sure who created the, the DOH comms name uh, when they signed in today, but if is either Brianna or Hannah capable of of getting a hold of, uh, of co-hosting capabilities? Matt, you're the co-host now. Try again. All right. I'm looking at options to share my co-hosting capabilities with uh, others, and I'm not. I'm looking at each of their menus associated with each of their names, and I'm not seeing that either. Hmm. Sorry, well, folks. Maybe, just give us a, maybe the uh, DOH comms person who shared the co-hosting, the mystery person behind the scenes, behind the curtain, uh, maybe that person could just unmute and mute. There we go. Thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> whichever one of our team members signed on without a name, I, thank you very much. It looks like I have the uh, capabilities I need now. So Julia, you are now unmuted. Please, thanks so much. Okay, thanks, Matt. Good to hear from you now, Julia. Thank you for your patience. Uh, not at all. Um, I, I have a little bit of confusion related to the booster shots that I wanted to ask about. The CDC has said that even for those who should be getting a booster, they're still considered fully uh, vaccinated with the two doses. And I guess I wondered, does that change at some point? Because the Pfizer data, if I'm reading it right, says that that efficacy is dropping to 84% within two months. And that's comparable to what a single dose um, efficacy had back when 
we had that information. So I guess I was wondering if that change if that changed as data comes in. And I guess the bigger question, I'm not I'm not um, trying to crunch a bunch of questions into one question, but I guess the bigger issue is that I'm I'm not sure I understand the relationship between waning immunity and transmissiveness, because that's the general context in which we're talking about someone being fully vaccinated is um, the vaccine mandates. And I guess I've been assuming that was for the case of cutting down transmission. And I don't, I'm not sure I understand what that relationship is in relationship to this waning immunity. Does that make sense in, at all? Ish? Okay, thanks. <laughs> I think, um, okay, do you want to go ahead, David? Or Oh, you go first. I want to talk about the conversation we've been happening, happening about this booster shot six months from now when we look back what it might be. So you can go first on just the, the, the differentiation and any opinions you have on the other question. Okay. I mean, I think that just in general, the booster dose has been um, a con, not, maybe not a controversy, but there's a lot of science that's um, being, uh, you know, debated about the whether the, the the booster dose is is actually necessary or not and in what types of groups so as you can see that when the cdc met for two days on it right there was a lot of debate on what which groups really it really benefited and which groups really did get additional immunity from the third dose so it was it was a, a definite yes, you know, Christine, please weigh in because you're also reading all that documentation. But you know, it was a clear yes for 65 and over. Um, there was clear indication that that would improve their immunity uh, slightly. Um, but a lot of the data that they used, you know, the science is is growing on this so not you know it's it's not a vaccine that's been around forever so you know they're they're using the data as it comes in so i i do think it there it is kind of confusing to people you know why do i need a third dose if i'm actually fully vaccinated and and i'm and and it actually does reduce um hospitalizations and deaths um what they're trying to do or what they're in you know in their discussions is that you're trying to reduce, right, the number of people who actually get cases because they're seeing with the Delta, more breakthrough cases. And so then you say, okay, well, you know, for those 65 and older, let's go ahead and give them a booster or 50 to 64 with comorbidities, let's give them a booster dose. Um, so I, you know, and, and I think David is gonna talk more about like whether, you know, really like just like many other vaccines, there's a three dose series, you know, whether, you know, the vaccine for COVID becomes like that a three dose series instead of a booster. But, uh, you know, um, whether it's related to the vaccine mandates, I, I believe that the vaccine mandates are really just to try to get more people vaccinated so we can prevent hospitalizations and deaths, right? We're seeing, you know, the Delta really did have it. Uh, impact on our hospitals. And so they're, you know, and deaths. So we don't want to see more of that. So that's, I think that's more of a prevention measure. Uh, they're not necessarily related, I think, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and turn it over to David. Yeah, Julie, it's a good question. I, you know, if I were to describe what's going on right now uh, with boosters is we're kind of as a country leaning a little bit into the unknown. Uh, it's, 
I think we have some science, not every bit, but some of us would like to have. And so, but uh, we were talking at our morning meeting yesterday or day before maybe, because uh, I can't keep track of days anymore, about whether, you know, a year from now, we'll look back on this booster shot as really the third vaccine in the primary series. I'm almost 100% sure that the three docs on this call have been immunized against hepatitis B. When you get a hepatitis B shot, you get one, the first shot. A month later, you get the second shot. And then six, and then five months after the second shot, you get the third shot. And that's the primary series, all three shots. And that last shot pulls that immunity up even higher and, and helps it last. And so I, this was Christine first came up with this idea. And I think it's like my favorite idea of the week now that uh, we'll, I think ask, hopefully we won't be having these press conferences in a year. So like, call me up on my cell phone and ask me what I think about the, uh, that third shot now. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you my opinion as well, Christine and Laura. Thanks. Anything else to add, Christine? Oh, well, I was, I was just going to say that's, uh, it's such an excellent question because, you know, we do, what my shop does is, is surveillance work and, uh, a very clear case definition of what you're trying to measure is really critical. And so I think that what we consider, what we consider fully vaccinated may in fact change in the future, exactly what um, Secretary Scrace and Petterhone just said. Um, you, I think you're seeing, you know, we're, we're building the ship as we sail and um, because we're in the middle of this pandemic and we continue to make corrections as we learn and, and build off of each uh, study and, and piece of information that we have. So I think that's a fantastic question and I think you're um, spot on. Will we consider someone fully vaccinated after two shots or will it be uh, a three shot series? Um, and that's what we're working on figuring out. And I always want to make the disclaimer, though, I'm not a vaccine immunologist, and we always kind of stretch to try to answer these questions. And I feel a little bit of discomfort. I try to stay in my lane, but I'm going to offer what, what I know about that. I think one last thing, so there's no confusion, is as far as what it says in the public health order, full vaccination uh, is and will be for the foreseeable future, the completion of that one dose J and J, which I think will become a two dose series, but, um, and, or both shots. So in other words, if hospital workers are required to be vaccinated, rolling out a booster has absolutely nothing to do with the public health orders and what we're requiring there. So I just want to make that clear. So people don't feel like they have to call in, but that, uh, those public health orders apply to the primary series only. Thank you. All, all right. Thank you very much to all three of our principals. Uh, next, we'll turn to Brittany Costello, followed by Stella Sun, and then Dan Boyd. Brittany, you are unmuted. Are you able to unmute yourself, Brittany? Yeah. I think she's... No, she's unmuted now. Brittany, can we can you hear hear us? 
Okay, I think we may just go ahead to the next uh, questioner and then we'll circle back to you, Brittany, when you're ready. Uh, so Stella, uh, you are unmuted and feel free to ask your question. Hey, Matt, Brittany might wanna go into the uh, settings in Zoom and uh, and check the uh, her audio connection. That's a good idea. All right, go ahead, Stella. Hi, hi everybody, always good to see you guys. I was just hoping if you guys could elaborate, if you have any idea on kids 5 to 11 on when they can get the Pfizer series? We're hearing some reports that possibly by Halloween. These are the national outlets reporting that. But do you have any inkling from the feds? And if you guys think that this will help um, the case counts for kids, because it looks like they're making up a quarter of new COVID infections recently. Uh, hoping you guys can address that. Thank you. I, I, uh, I'll start. I know Laura will want to weigh in and all of us who have kids in New Mexico want to weigh in on this one, believe me. But uh, I got an email from our contact at Pfizer, was it Tuesday, saying they had submitted the data to the FDA and, uh, and they were hoping to have a hearing for EUA for vaccination for kids 5 to 11. Uh, I facetiously asked if they would mind sharing the data with me. And uh, of course, they can't do that. That it does... The first time it becomes public is when the FDA has their hearing. But in the past, uh, the average interval between when the data was submitted and when that hearing occurs has been three to four weeks most of the time. And so if they submitted it a couple of days ago, that would have been September 27th. Uh, you know, just even on, even if you say four weeks, that way I'm doing the math really quickly here, but I think that's around October uh, 25th or so. Um, so we very, and then ASAP, the CDC weigh in, almost always occurs, occurs exactly the day after. And then the medical advisory team here in New Mexico weighs in that night. There, we, we work long out, longer hours here uh, at New Mexico and we have to meet on this at night. So it's possible. And I know in terms of, you know, my opinion on it, of course, it's the sooner the better. Uh, Laura and Christine, do you, are you hearing anything different or anything to add? Um, no, you you answered that perfectly. I think um, many people are waiting for that for their kids, and um, and I I just think one of the things that we are seeing is is that it's um, people are are concerned about giving shots to five to eleven year olds, and so just to reiterate that the data that they have submitted is very very good. Um, in terms of side effects, it's just similar to everyone else's side effects, very minor side effects, like a little bit of fever or arm pain and not in everybody. And uh, so I think a lot of our work right now, especially pediatricians and um, uh, other healthcare providers who work with kids is really to um, work with, the, with parents, work in the community to try to get the word out for kids um, so we can get more of these kids um, you know, vaccinated, and you're right, less kids being cases for COVID. And even, even though there are very few kids who get really, really sick or die, there are kids who do get sick and die. And I think that's really, it's preventable. And uh, so just the, in, encouraging people to get the facts right now so that when it does come out, your kids can get a vaccine. All right, thanks everybody. Brittany, let's give it another shot with you. Uh, I've got you unmuted. Are you able to speak to us? I see that you're signed in under two different accounts. So perhaps you or your colleague there at the network can, can try via the other account next time. But I think I'm going to 
move on to another questioner. Uh, so I'll move on to Dan Boyd, followed by Merrill Cornfield, followed by Juno Ogle. Dan, you are unmuted. Thanks. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity. As always, uh, Dan Boyd with the Albuquerque Journal. Good to see you all remotely. Um, I have another additional question for later, but wanted to also kind of drill down on the booster shots. Um, my question was, I, I understand the two week delay before the younger frontline workers will be able to get their eligible for the booster shots and wanted to see if that was due to kind of a vaccine supply issue or why that kind of um, pause, I guess, before that other group is also eligible. Yeah, we, re we really don't have a vaccine supply issue. We have a lot of supply. Um, it's just that we don't have as many sites to get vaccinated in as we did initially. A lot of the mass vaccination sites now, like there's Balloon Fiesta and there's conferences and there's places where we used to have the mass vaccination sites. We don't have access to those locations anymore as people are going back to their normal activities. Um, and and so, so that's one, um, but we are bringing on some contractors to, to do some more, you know, to, to set up some larger sites. Um, that's one piece. And then the other pieces is that um, because the, 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 you know, the recommendation is really to prioritize the older people over 65 and those with comorbidities, we wanted to give a two week um, start so that we could help vaccinate the vulnerable people first. Because what happens a lot of times is that, you know, there's a mad rush and then younger people can get on the computer faster or, you know, get, get into the sites faster. So we really wanted to give the older people just a head start. Um, I don't know, David, if you want to build upon that. But well, I would just add one, uh, one little anecdote from today. Uh, I actually, I got my text to get my booster uh, a couple days ago, and I was sitting in a hearing uh, in the House of Representatives chamber here in New Mexico of a combined group of people, and Senator Martin Hickey uh, was there. And while he was there at the meeting, he got a text encouraging him to get his booster. So we are we're we're trying to balance our resources and demand. Uh, we've learned a lot from the first time through, and so we're rolling out the texting according to capacity and, and all that and our call center volume so we can continue to serve New Mexicans. But yep, you've heard me say it before, these folks over 65, they're my people. I guess I'm one of them now, so we are my people. And, uh, and uh, uh, we wanna give them that little extra shot at things. The other thing uh, that's really interesting is that the, we have almost no people in nursing homes vaccinated with Pfizer. So that big peak will come when Moderna announces their booster. So it does, there's a few, but it's actually less than hundred, I believe, uh, according to the data I saw. So that should be relatively easy to make sure those folks get their vaccines. Thank you to you both. And uh, I think we've solved the Brittany Costello mystery. Uh, she's signed on with two accounts and she's asked me to ask her question via the chat. So I'm just gonna go ahead and do that. Uh, she says, my question is on employee vaccination rates. I believe the 40 days, referring to the public health order, are up this week. What happens when the time runs out? And I, I believe what she's referring to there is a requirement for, for employee vaccinations. But uh, Brittany, if I'm interpreting that incorrectly, please let me know. So what happens when the time runs out? 
And then she's also asking about um, hospital worker shortage, shortages and what kind of impact would an even 1% staff shortage have on our facility? So two questions. Got it. And uh, I've been talking almost uh, at least a couple times a week with our hospitals to stay up to speed on this. What we're seeing uh, in large part is an initial level of concern uh, expressed by employees, people who don't want to be vaccinated at all. Uh, and then as the date gets close and the date's certain uh, comes up soon, and thanks for uh, pointing out that 40 days comes due this week. I fought hard for that number 40. It was going to be lower. Uh, uh, what happens, I think, depends on the institution. The state does not regulate that. We regulate the institution not having unvaccinated healthcare workers caring for patients. So as I said, uh, many people have put people on administrative leave or letting them spend on their vacation. Uh, what we've seen in other settings across the United States and here is uh, that at that very last minute, people line up for their initial shot or to do an exemption or just hold their ground. Uh, you know, without being facetious, a 1% impact on healthcare uh, workers uh, in our state would mean that all the other healthcare workers would have to work 1.01% harder. Uh, they're already working as hard as they can. So I think it's a big deal. And if it's a nurse on a midnight shift, uh, that means a nurse, another nurse is going to have to stay up all night to fill in for her. Uh, but then I think the other question is what happens if we go back a month and take the large, larger number of unvaccinated healthcare workers and just have them work in hospitals, they get COVID and they're out for, you know, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks or longer. So that has an impact as well. So we still believe that the net impact is just going to be even. Our preliminary data on nurses suggests, and it's not real hard data. We got it uh, from our friends and partners with the Hospital Association is maybe around one and a half percent, but we're still trying to tally that informally uh, about that being people who are saying, no matter what, I'm, I'm not going to get vaccinated. I'm willing to leave. But when the time finally comes, we're finding that that number drops off. So it's a really good question and it's an important question, particularly in a time of crisis. But we, we, uh, somebody's calculated that you can lose as many or more healthcare workers by just not having them vaccinated at all, since uh, that percentage was previously 30%. In the Department of Health, we've seen a big rapid uptake uh, in vaccination. We've got 3,000 employees and, uh, you know, a, a very small percent of them are. Uh, really uh, are, are taking an exemption. And all of those people are in facilities right now where the vaccine is actually required without an alternative. So long answer, but I think we're dealing with it. I think our hospitals are stepping up. We thank, we want to thank all the vaccinated hospital workers for being vaccinated and for encouraging your peers to be vaccinated and for doing extra shifts for those unvaccinated workers. And we want to really keep the focus and the celebration on the hard work you're doing. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, Brittany, if, I hope that answered the question, but if not, please feel free to type in the uh, chat and we'll make sure to get your follow-up covered as well. Uh, next up will be Merrill Cornfield. Merrill, I apologize, I don't recognize your name. So if you don't mind announcing your news outlet, I'd appreciate that. And after Merrill, we'll have Juno Ogle. Merrill, you should be unmuted. 
Hi, it's Meryl Cornfield from the Washington Post. Thank you for everyone for answering um, these questions and giving this information. I had a question about hospitalizations uh, when you were talking about skirting the line just below crisis standards of care. I'm wondering if you can talk about the situation in hospitals now in terms of rationing care, um, how widespread it is, what hospitals are lacking, what you're hearing on the ground. Yeah, uh, Merle, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for that fantastic map that I showed like near the end of my presentation. We love that one. I talking about getting it framed, but folks <laughs> might want to wait till the end of the pandemic. Uh, you know, it's it's tough. Uh, just since you're a relative newcomer to these, let me just go over some of the background data. New Mexico, I think, ranks 46th among states in terms of the number of general hospital beds per 10,000 in population. And I think we're in the 40s also, I don't remember the exact number for ICU beds. So before the pandemic even started, we were already running short. Second is because of that shortage of beds, we tend to run pretty full hospitals, particularly in metropolitan areas. And even before the pandemic started, it wasn't unusual for University of New Mexico, Presbyterian levels, ICUs to be 100% full. So this is like normal life for us. And then on top of that, you add another 300, uh, I think at our peak uh, last year, we had 1,000 additional patients. So I showed a slide of a self-scoring system that we use in hospitals to figure out where we are. We, As you pointed out, we're skirting that line, right, on crisis standards of care. This week, ventilators were moved from one city to another to meet patient needs. This week, other supplies were moved to meet patient needs. And, and so we have a, a team of people that meets uh, several times a week at the executive level to look at this and make decisions. Uh, the hospital uh, association meets. Uh, our medical advisory team as a hub hospital group. We've organized the state into hubs and spokes. And so each region of the state has a referral center and then those referral centers move in to Albuquerque. I can tell you uh, that uh, we, the, the wait, the wait for transfers from rural hospitals to Albuquerque has been, uh, has been longer than normal because of this additional volume. Uh, but then on the other hand, our, our hub hospitals in uh, Las Cruces, Roswell, Santa Fe, and Albuquerque uh, have done a great job uh, managing uh, those referrals as they can. I don't. We haven't had a single person who needed a ventilator who couldn't get one. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody who needed a hospital bed uh, who couldn't find someone a bed somewhere. But also keep in mind in New Mexico, before the pandemic, we would have days when we had 30 or 40 people waiting in the ER. We'd already been admitted to the hospital just waiting for a bed. And so uh, that it's sort of a challenging bed situation to start with layered on. I wanna salute our hospital people who've done a good job rationing care. You know, every now and then there'll be a tweet from someone who's didn't get the care they wanted uh, there was one last week, for example, where someone was saying that their uh, relative could not get into uh, the bed they needed. You know, we regulate all the hospitals in the state here at the Department of Health. So we jump on those instantly and we did reach out. Uh, we talked to the folks at the hospital. Uh, we talked to the folks at a potential referring hospital. But at the time, you know, and this is like, oh, 
20 minutes after we learned uh, the, about the concern that a family member had, uh, there was general agreement amongst all parties that the patient was at the appropriate level of care and did not require transfer to an ICU. So long, long answer. Uh, we are up against it. We work uh, incredibly hard every day. Uh, there are hospitals taking care of people in hallways uh, because of the large volumes, but the light at the end of the tunnel, I'm hoping is not an oncoming train. I'm, this drop we've seen in hospitalizations progressively to where we're about 150 people lower than we were oh, four or five days ago, I'm hoping is a very positive sign. So that's kind of a little quick dissertation. I don't know if that was more information than you're looking for or less, but uh, I would be happy to take a follow-up question next time around too. Thank, and again, thank you for that map. I really, really like it. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. Uh, next, we'll turn to Juno Ogle. Juno, you are unmuted. Um, thank you again for taking our questions today. Um, Juno Ogle with the Roswell Daily Record. Um, I submitted this question yesterday, so I hope you had some time to, to take a look at it. Uh, my question's on the vaccine equity report, uh, particularly on the charts that begin on page 25 on vaccine disparity and geography. I wonder if you could maybe just explain a little bit more on how to read those charts, what the percentages mean, and maybe comment on particular the chart on page 27. It looks like there was a significant change in the last week over the disparity among Hispanics and Latinos and what you might attribute that to. Thank you. So, Juno, we've got this up on the screen. Uh, Laura, I, I've said this before, but Laura is not only our expert uh, uh, on vaccines, but she is the human embodiment of a lifetime commitment to advancing equity in healthcare and like really a national level expert in my view on this topic. So uh, I'm gonna be quiet now. And is this the slide you're referring to, Juno? Or you said uh, yes, that is. Okay, go ahead, Although, Laura. It looks like uh, the previous week. So I'm, I was looking at the September 27th report. Oh yeah. Okay, I can pull that too. So, okay, the September 27th. Yeah, I can pull that one. Um, let me just pull that one for you. All right. Is it this one? Is that the one you're seeing? No, that's not the one. The one that says a 1.3, right? Sorry. Yes, for Chavez County. Yeah, okay, let me. Yes, that's, that's it. Okay, great. So, um, you know, the, the reason why, you know, thanks again to David to encourage us to put this up online, but the, the reason why we're, we have these vaccine equity reports is to give back to the community so that the communities can look at some of the data and, and, and help determine where they want to put their efforts. So these vaccine disparity geographic slides per racial, uh, for racial ethnicity, equity is really, I mean, the DOH, like David said, has amazing data people, both in the um, public health department and also in the epidemiology response department, right, division, sorry. And so what what we've done with these is, is that we take the data from the, the we, we collect a lot of vaccine data in the, in the, in the public health department's um, infectious disease bureau. And so like, this is the work of many, many people collecting this and, and sharing this data. And what, what this does is that 
it's a cumulative, um, it's cumulative per race in every county compared to other races, race and ethnicities. So for instance, let's just go through Chavez County. So last week, Chavez County was negative 2.7%, and this week it was 1.3%. Um, that's the difference between its share of the population. So, so let's, let's say, um, I'm just making it up because I don't have the number in front of me, but let's say Chavez County is 50% Hispanic population and 50% non-Hispanic white population. Let's just, I'm just making that up. So this week, last week, um, the, the percent of vaccinations was negative 2.7% less of the vaccines that you got. So instead of 50% of vaccine, it's like, I don't know, 43% or 43.7% um, of people who got vaccines um, were Hispanic population. Does that make sense? So yes. it's just basically comparing it to itself. Um, this week, it's 1.3%. Um, it's basically saying that we at least got, you know, 50% of people who got vaccines this week were Hispanic, and then a little bit more. And the little bit more is because, let's say, um, the people who were maybe white did not get the vaccine. So more people this past week got vaccinated who are Hispanic. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does. Thank you. And and then yeah. I know you're, oh, go ahead. Laura, I was going to say too, that this is really particularly crit critical because um, we want to see these numbers be positive. Uh, Laura showed the slide that showed that there are race, ethnicities, Hispanic, Latinos, Latinx, and African-Americans that are a smaller share of the vaccines. And, and we want this data to be available to communities so communities can put on events in the locations that are most familiar to those populations that most need the vaccines. And while we don't all live in Santa Fe and actually both HSD and DOH have uh, you know, uh, offices in every county in the state and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, there's a bunch of them in Roswell, uh, um, you know, we really are relying on communities to help sponsor these events. We're relying on the media to get the word out locally and promote these events so that we can, uh, so that we can vaccinate more people. And, and that slide that Laura showed is actually page 23 in the vaccine report that we're, we have open right now. And so you can look at that if you want more Juno. But green is good. Positive numbers are good. It means we're making progress and getting more vaccine to people with lower rates. And, um, and you know, we hope that people can use this as kind of like a big picture, um, a big picture map to help them, yeah, like David said, to identify locations where we need to focus uh, more effort. Um, and uh, one of the things actually the Department of Health is doing right now, we have um, allocated $8 million over a period of two years to give to small organizations um, in the communities to sponsor those events that David's talking about. You know, if it's if it's gonna be, you wanna make your own materials 
or you want to have a food truck or, you know, have some music to like come and get people, you know, in the locations that people are used to going to or excited about visiting. That's kind of the, the idea of this, um, whether or if it, you wanted to go door to door and visit people to get vaccinated, it's basically for that. So, so the DOH is allocating funding for communities to be able to put these events on because we know this is for the long haul and we have to build trust and, and also give people the information the way they want it and how they want it, you know, to, to get more people vaccinated. Thanks, everybody. Um, the participants may may recognize that I, I just lowered everyone's hand just because we've been through that first round of questions. But if you'd like to ask an additional question, by all means, now's the time to raise your hand. Thanks, Julia. I'll start with you. And Dan looks like you'll be next. Meryl, you'll be next. And we'll see where it goes after that. So, Julia, you sh should still be unmuted. I think, uh, I, you... I think I am. Thanks, Matt. And well, actually, I was going to ask Dr. Ross, is she gone? Um, She's not done? Okay. I just wanted to double check um, about pediatric cases. Um, I think, and I think Dr. Ross talked about this last week that overall there's been about 16% of cases have been pediatric, but then they've risen to a little over 25% in the last week. And I just, I wanted to double check, is that, do we consider that to be because of Delta or is that also um, potentially because of school, kids being in school? Sorry, there's a little bit of instability with the internet. So I was trying to figure that out. Um, I, I believe I heard your question. Um, and I think you started off by reviewing the data. And oh. I think I think you nailed that. Um, and I just wanted to point out that it, it, it's really concerning to us uh, that over the course of the pandemic, you've seen about you know, 16% of cases were pediatric, but right now they're a quarter. So 25% of these cases are occurring among children. So that's that's very concerning, uh, especially when we're now uh, back in school. And that's why every opportunity I get, I try to uh, raise that point about uh, the fact that a large segment of those kids are unprotected and why the mitigation measures um, ensuring that they're in place in schools, uh, we feel is absolutely critical uh, to continue to help us protect children. And I think as Secretary Scrace had pointed out, I, I, I believe a week or two ago, you know, nationally, we've seen this rise in pediatric hospitalizations and deaths. Here in New Mexico, uh, we've had four pediatric deaths, very um, unfortunate, um, but we haven't seen a rise um, uh, uh, with this Delta surge. And in fact, pediatric hospitalizations appear to be fairly, there was a slight incline and then it appears to be stable as well. And we really attribute this to our high vaccination coverage in the state and the fact that we are able to, to protect children uh, with uh, vaccination of adults and eligible, uh, those that are eligible 12 and over, and then plus all of these mitigation measures in school. And then I was going to get to the point, Julia, I believe your second part of your question uh, which I've now forgotten. So I'm going to ask you to to repeat that for me. No, I just I had a note that that you had mentioned this was attributable to Delta being more transmissible um, and not to yeah. kids being back in school. And I just wanted to make sure I was understanding that. Yeah, 
I think it's difficult to tease those things apart, right? So, so absolutely, the Delta has been a game changer. So we did not see the same number of children infected um, when we had the predominance of other variants. So absolutely, Delta has been a game changer uh, because of its uh, increased uh, transmissibility or contagiousness. And then I think, though, we, we would be remiss not to say, though, this is in the setting of when you're bringing, um, uh, when, we, when we do bring folks back together out in the community, which we've been doing now, uh, and once we hit a, a certain level of vaccination coverage in the state, we, we relaxed measures so that people were able to um, uh, do more things. Uh, but unfortunately, um, that also allows um, uh, the virus opportunity to, to transmit. Um, but I hope I clarified that a bit. But you're right. With Delta, there's been a complete, um, we're seeing a completely different uh, epidemic among children. Thank you. Okay, next we'll turn to Dan Boyd, followed by Meryl Cornfield. Dan, you should be unmuted. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for the follow-up. And, and my question maybe is kind of a, a follow-up to Julia's a little bit, but I, I believe it was Secretary Steinhaus who had mentioned two weeks ago the 37% drop in cases among uh, teachers and students in, in school settings. And, and I wanted to see if you'd had a chance to see whether that was kind of, of a blip as far as data or whether that's continued over the last couple of weeks. So I think what I'm seeing is a mirror of what's happening in the community. Uh, so as we see case rates and cases among um, school-aged children uh, start to decline, uh, then you, you see that in the, the PED data or the public education uh, department data that's reported as well. Um, so uh, I do think that that decline uh, has continued. Um, though I don't have that data readily at hand, I don't know if others do, I can, I can look for uh, the PED data if you'd like. I, I think that's, that, that yeah, covers my, my main question. If anyone else had that data, but it was more of just kind of the general trend if that's kind of continued. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Uh, next, we'll turn to Meryl Cornfield. Hi, um, thanks for the nice words about the map. I'll definitely share that with the reporters um, that made that map. I'm sure they would love to hear that. Um, I wanted to go back to something that you had said in your earlier answer about, um, you know, tweets make the rounds about, you know, these anecdotes about, you know, what's going on with one particular case. Um, and I'm interested in, you know, what the um, broader trend you're seeing is. Um, there was this thread, I'm sure you've seen it, that came out this past week um, of a woman talking about her father um, who fell and um, he had developed pneumonia, um, was um, put in an ICU and put on a vent. Um, and she had wrote about calling other neighboring states to no avail, not really getting um, help elsewhere. Um, and since you talked about those 86 patients who were transferred out of state, I'm wondering how common is it that patients in New Mexico are unable to leave the state because of the situations um, in neighboring states. Um, and also I wanted to clarify for the number 86, if that is um, yesterday. No, uh, we're not that big of a state, but great question. It was last week, the last calendar week. And uh, 
Yeah, I, I, that was the tweet I was referring to. I think I think American hospitals are full, and if we pulled up the the great uh, Washington Post map, what you'd see is Arizona, Texas, and uh, Colorado, kind of our border states, all full, and so that's part of the problem. American hospitals, American ICUs, are full from the Delta pandemic. It's just a, a stickier problem for us that requires a lot more finesse every single day because we started with a low number of beds. So the tweet you just referenced was the one I had referenced earlier. We did call immediately when we heard about that. But uh, uh, <clears throat> I think it is a common occurrence um, throughout New Mexico and the rest of the country for uh, to see to, for every hospital, particularly small, rural, smaller more rural hospitals who are used to very quick transfers from their rural facility to an urban, you know, medical center that has a large ICU. Everywhere in the country where those delays are occurring. I think in New Mexico is pretty much like everybody else. We just started with a lower baseline. So I do appreciate the questions. Uh, we've got some great hospital leaders here and uh, I'm gonna take a chance uh, with your question of piggyback on one from Brittany as well that I forgot as part of my answer. And that was just, when we're looking at a decrease in nursing staff, the state has arranged and connected not-for-profit hospitals with FEMA and for-profit hospitals with FEMA through the state to receive additional FEMA reimbursement, federal reimbursement to pay nurses more uh, to recruit them or, or retain them uh, in their facilities. I, I know on the recruiting side anyway. and so. Um, so we're doing that as well as to counter any slight loss. But yeah, times are tight. I think the other thing I guess I should say is even though I'm optimistic seeing the number of general beds drop over the past four or five days, uh, usually the number of ICU beds dropping takes a while after general beds drop. So I think we'll still be up against it and facing significant challenges. I think the last thing on that tweet was at the time the chain started, not when we were alerted to it. Um, uh, that person was wanting to transfer from a ventilator in one ICU to a ventilator in another ICU. And it was not the feeling of the treating physicians or the folks at the potential referral center that a transfer was needed. And so uh, a transfer of a patient in an ICU in a state like New Mexico, where that could be 100 miles or 300 miles, is something um, we uh, don't do. And in fact, in a rural state like ours, we run into issues like we can't fly the person uh, from, uh, let's just say Hobbs to Albuquerque because they require continuous high levels of oxygen. A tank won't last long enough to get them from Hobbs to, uh, uh, to Albuquerque, so some very practical, unusual limitations. And so uh, we, if a patient is already receiving ICU level of care almost anywhere in the state, we're reluctant to transfer when ICU beds are full. So I, kind of a long answer, lots of different moving parts, lots of factors, but uh, you know, if your follow-up question on the third round is what can we do to prevent this overflow uh, of people in ICUs. It's an incredibly simple answer. It's get vaccinated.
You know, on any given week, 95 to 100% of people in New Mexico ICUs that are so full are unvaccinated individuals uh, amongst that COVID population. So thanks for giving me a chance to talk about that again. Thanks, Dr. Scrace. And just a quick follow-up from Rick Ruggles at the Santa Fe New Mexican. He just wanted to confirm what he thought he heard earlier, which was, did you say 10 available ICU beds at this time? I think on the map I showed it was 10. Uh, that's at a, a snapshot point in time. It was yesterday morning, just before noon, when hospitals report daily how many beds they have. And so uh, that was the most recent data. Yeah. And it, and as of uh, just before noon yesterday, it was 10. And then they fill up and then people move down to a lower level of care and we open up new ones the next day. Thank you. And Rick, just for your benefit, we uh, we do distribute the slides after the, the presentation's over. So if you'd like to receive those, we can send them your way. All right. I don't see any hands up, but uh, I'll, I'll put it out there. Would anyone like to raise a hand and ask any final questions before we wrap today? Okay. Seeing none, I will turn it over to Dr. Scrace and our principals to uh, wind things down for us today. How about Christine, Laura, and, and then me? Oh, I just want to say thank you for for continuing to to join us here and um, um, help us get the word out about uh, what we can do to control this uh, pandemic in New Mexico. And I, I hope I'm not going to steal uh, Secretary Petterhone's line, but I, I, I this is just the one thing that keeps resonating in my head is just uh, vaccination is how this pandemic ends. Period. I'm just gonna echo that, that's great. That, yeah, once again, thanks to all of you to, to get the word out. I think that the, the, the next piece of this, I, boosters is, are important, but the primary doses to get the unvaccinated vaccinated is still our prime directive in terms of how we're gonna end this and how we're gonna um, get the most vulnerable people vaccinated. There's still a lot of um, mistrust, misinformation. I think it's on all of us, you know, all of you in the um, uh, in the press, as well as all of us, you know, in healthcare field, to keep on building trust and and, and community organize and and help people get to those doses. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for being part of that. Yeah, and and again, just lastly, probably almost everyone in New Mexico knows or is related to a healthcare worker. We've got a, enough of them in our state that, I mean, I have a healthcare worker that lives in my house, my wife. And so for their sake, please, please uh, do those recommended public health measures. Uh, again, we wanna thank them for their tireless effort and service. Really appreciate all their work. And I would probably have only the slightest different uh, summary that Christine did Instead of saying get, get vaccinated, period, I would say uh, get vaccinated, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And with that, I think we're done for today and we will see you in future weeks. Thanks very much.